Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Hello, Donald. Glad to see you're back with us in the new house, I see. No. No. In the no. old house, empty. The old house, they moved me around again. Oh, my goodness. They just can't. They won't leave Donald alone. They just have the house to goes on sale this week, though, if anyone is really interested. <laughs> By the time this publishes, that house will be sold. <laughs> At least I hope so. I hope so, too. Yeah. And today we have with us Dennis Jennings. Where are you from, Dennis? Where do you live? I live in Dublin, in Ireland. Uh, okay. I've lived there most most of my life. I came to Dublin at the age of two with my parents, and uh, I'm uh, Irish. I'm an Irishman. I'm always considered myself born and bred, although actually I was born in England, which is something of a disgrace for an, an Irishman. But there you go. <laughs> I wanted to be near my mother at the time is the usual answer. So, so, yeah, so I assume Northern England at least. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Manchester. Yeah, I was born yeah, in so, Manchester. Right. So at least Northern England. That's a good thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, 1945, which gives you my generation. So let's start with just the very beginning. How did you get involved in this networking thing? How did that happen? And let's move from there and talk about what we want to get to NSFNet, I think, eventually. I, I became interested in networking when working for a software house and consulting house, and we were doing some work for... Allied Irish Banks, the, one of the major banks here in Ireland, and they were linking their branches together. And that whole idea of linking stuff and linking computers was intriguing. And then in 1977, there was a symposium, or colloquium, I can't remember the exact name of it, held in Trinity College, Dublin, the, the oldest of the Irish universities. Uh, and they had all the great and the good from networking in Europe, uh, Germany, uh, the United States, uh, the UK, and so on. And uh, I decided to register and go along. And listen, I, I was absolutely fascinated. I don't remember who was there from from which country uh, in general, but I presume Vint and Bob Kahn were there. I know Louis Pouzin uh, was there from France. I'm sure the UK, uh, Janet people were there. But I found that whole idea of linking computers and accessing computers remotely was, was amazing. Shortly after that, I uh, became the uh, first full-time director of computing in University College Dublin, uh, the largest university in Ireland and the, um, the other university back then to Trinity College. Uh, <laughs> Trinity College is the old one. University College Dublin is, is brand new, founded in 1908, comes out of the... Uh, Catholic University founded by Cardinal Newman, but all that is interesting history. That's not about brand universities. New. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I find interesting about this is that there was the old one and the big one. <laughs> it's yes. good that it's good that the old one was not the big one because now you can accurately describe the two universities by superlatives. <laughs> yes, yes, and and my, my wife graduated with an MBA from Trinity College, so there is uh, intense inter inter rivalry between us about which university is the best university in, in Ireland. Uh, Trinity College is the best known uh, university globally. But anyway, anyway, I, I, I became director of computing at University College Dublin. And uh, as I settled in there and started buying time sharing machines and moving from 
punch cards to online. The whole idea of networking was in the back of my mind. And in 1982, I made the first proposal for a, an inter-university network uh, in, in Ireland. And that actually became live as, as HEANet, the Higher Education Authority Network, in 1983, linking the universities together. And, and I pretty well led that initiative. About the same time, I heard from a good friend of mine, Ira Fuchs, whom I knew from City University of New York, about BitNet, and more importantly, about the European Academic Research Network being funded by IBM to connect major universities in Europe together in, in a BitNet-like network. And uh, six countries, the six big countries, were already involved and I basically lobbied IBM to get involved to become the seventh country, little old Ireland, and was promptly at the first formative meeting uh, appointed or elected or acclaimed to be the president of the EARN network or chairman of the committee, whichever you want to do it. So, so I had form. By 1983-84, I had some form in organizing international community and national community networks and actually knew something about it. And so, so this sounds like a story of no good deed goes unpunished. Well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I loved it. Anyway, you may, you may be aware that Larry Landweber was, a, was, a, was and still is a, a major networking guru. And um, he founded the Landweber series of meetings, which were designed to encourage, to inform people around the world about uh, networking and to encourage people to get together and to share their experiences. The first one was in Princeton. And this, I can't remember where the second one, I think was London. Anyway, the third one was in Paris in 1984, which I went to wearing my various HEA net and earn hats and university hats. And I met Ira for the first, I met um, Larry Landweber for the first time, introduced by Ira. And they uh, muttered among themselves and suggested that I would be a good candidate as director of CSNet. So later that year, I was in California benchmarking an Amdahl computer. And I contacted Larry and he said, well, why don't you go and talk to the head of NCAR or UCAR, the university consortium, which was responsible for CSNet. And while you're there, why don't you talk to John Connolly at the National Science Foundation? They're looking for somebody too. So I took the red eye from, from, from San Francisco uh, to Washington. I joined a meeting in the, uh, of the National Science Board Committee on Networking with a number of networking luminaries there, um, Larry, Ira, Dave Farber, and, and others I don't remember. And even though I was thoroughly jet-lagged and pretty exhausted having arrived in off the plane, I found myself within about 20 minutes picking up the marker and getting to the whiteboard and saying, if I were designing a national network for the United States, here's the approach I would, would take. And that was a very, a really very interesting moment in my life because up to then, we poor uh, little old Irish people thought that everybody involved in academia and networking in the United States were giants and, and, and gods. They walked, they walked on water. They, they, they knew everything. And it was an object lesson to me that, you know what, 
I knew as much and was just as good as these guys. And that was a very exciting personal discovery that I could pick up the marker and teach these guys something. Modestly teach these guys a different approach to doing something. Well, I interviewed for the CSNet job. I interviewed with uh, John Connolly for the NSF net job. And between the jigs and the reels, I eventually negotiated a decent salary and a 15-month assignment at the National Science Foundation for what was then called ScienceNet because I felt that that opportunity offered more scope to do something really very significant, although it wasn't really clear what exactly the job was going to be. <laughs> um, That's CSNet always the job, best job. <laughs> it was vaguely to build the communications or networking infrastructure to allow supercomputer users access to supercomputer centers. And that was as much a brief as, uh, as anything. Uh, and a little side note, I had arranged my, my leave of absence from the university for 15 months. I'd got the job offer. And I got a panicked call from John Connolly asking me, an Irishman, was there any chance that I could be English? And I said, <laughs> why? He said, well, it turns out that the U.S. federal government cannot hire citizens of non-allied nations. And Ireland is neutral. It's not an ally. And therefore, the U.S. federal government could not hire Irish citizens. To which I was able to respond, well, as it happens, I was born in England. So I'm a British citizen by birth. <laughs> and so I was able to be hired by the U.S. federal government. And I arrived on the 1st of January, 1985, well, actually the second, because the first was a holiday, of course, to take up my position. And that's how I became the first program director for networking at the National Science Foundation with this broad brief to build a network for the supercomputer users, to allow supercomputer users access past, present, and future to access the National Supercomputer Centers, which were being put in place by the supercomputer center side of John Connolly's office, the Office of Advanced Scientific Computing, which reported directly to the uh, NSF's director, uh, a wonderful man called Eric Bloch, who I reported to for ex-IBM senior vice president, uh, designer of the IBM 360 uh, hardware, and a, a, a major power and intellect in the computing world. And actually for some time, the temporary science advisor for the Ronald, for Ronald Reagan in his uh, second term uh, in 85-86. So that's how I got there. That's how I got interested in networking, and that's how that evolved rapidly to be, put me in a position where I could actually do some serious good or serious damage at the National Science Foundation. Okay, so talk to us about the NSFNet. I mean, where did you start out, and how did that move from there? Well, um, I, I wasn't there more than a wet week, as we say in this part of the world. A wet week being the definition of a long and miserable time, of course. <laughs> uh, I wasn't there for more than a couple of weeks when at 20 minutes notice, I was asked to give a presentation to the National Science Board, the, the board of the NSF. So I quickly got an overhead foil, one of these clear foils and a marker pen, 
and sketched a couple of vague network clouds overlapping and put them up on the foil on the overhead projector and spoke to the National Science Board for 20 minutes outlining my vision of a network of network or an internet of interconnected networks, which would enable a, a user on one network at their workstation to connect across this collection of networks to a supercomputer center on another network and access and use that supercomputer. And that one of the key things that uh, needed to be determined was the internetworking standards that would be adopted to make this collection or network of networks work. So right from the very beginning, I had the idea that this would be a network of networks, an internet. There would be internet standards adopted and that uh, that would be the model for building the NSFnet. Kind of awfully obvious, you might say, with certainly from today's perspective. But remember, back then, most of the agency networks, the federal agency networks, whether IBM, SNA networks, are deck nets. Uh, the most uh, important uh, high-energy Department of Energy network was the MFE, Magnetic Fusion Energy Network, which used a version of an early version of digital protocols, DEC protocols, to access Cray supercomputer centers running the MFE operating system. And that was used by one of the supercomputer centers. So, so this wasn't a natural fit for what was actually going on among the science and engineering community. It was a perfect fit for what was going on in the ARPANET community, in the computer science community, which had uh, implemented CSNet. But for the general body of supercomputer users, this was not the, the immediate way they thought about it. They did recognize, of course, the power of open standards and open interconnection, but nobody had built a network, a national network like this out of the internet protocols. So why, so why would you say it was so important to do standards at that time, to do a standards-based approach? Because I, I remember the time you were talking about, and I mean, we're talking about Novell Netware, we're talking about Banyan Vines, we're talking about SNA, everything was proprietary. Absolutely. But if you wanted to achieve the, the goal that every supercomputer users at their workstation, on their local area network or whatever, could communicate with any supercomputer across a variety of networks, or any other supercomputer user across a variety of networks, then you had to have a standard that, inter that interconnected these networks. That's called internetworking. That's called the internet. You, you can't do it any other way, other than with a kludge of gateways and logging into this and doing that, and all that sort of nonsense that make no sense whatsoever. Now, that was perfectly natural to me because I was coming from Europe where the idea of a, a national network, a national coordinating body, be that uh, French network or Janet in the UK, or the Higher Education Authority Network in, in Ireland, or DENIC, whatever it was called, the German Network Organization in Germany. It was very national, very natural to think of building a national standards-based network of networks to do just that, to connect everybody together. So that was the model. 
the the next decision that I made was, I suppose, really the most important one. And it, it was this, that instead of building a network for existing supercomputer users, which was an alternative model, look, you find out who are the 500 or 1,000 best, uh, most qualified, peer-reviewed supercomputer users. You run a 56 KB line to them. You connect that to their favorite supercomputer, and you're done. That's what, what we're going to do. That was not my model. But also, more importantly, the whole point of the supercomputer initiative and the building of the National Supercomputer Centers was to build, to, to make supercomputing available to a much wider cohort of researchers across the United States, not just to the elite few, but to the many, all the researchers in all disciplines across the United States. And so I said to myself, you know, that is a good reason for making a general purpose national infrastructure for all science and engineering research, indeed, for all researchers, rather than just for supercomputer users. So the model was a network of networks or internet, standard protocols, and providing service, networking services to the whole research community across the United States of America. And that's what I set out to do. That's the model that I set out to convince people about. And that's the model I started to build. So how much do you think that your choice to do that drove the acceptance of the IETF and other standards bodies? I was just curious because there was obviously some, there has to be some interaction between the consumer of standards and the promulgators of standards to, to make that work, right? Well, it turned out that it was actually pretty early days in internet standards in 1985. So for example, later on in the story, when I, when I um, promoted the idea of a backbone network, it created the, 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 uh, the, the situation where there were interconnections, there were routing loops. The underlying assumption up to 1985 was that the ARPANET was the backbone and therefore everything rooted up to the ARPANET, the ARPANET was the backbone, that was it. But I didn't see, perhaps I didn't know enough to realize that that was the assumption. I didn't, I just had a network of networks with cross connections, multiple backbones. In fact, the model that I adopted was a three layer model. The campus networks, which I assumed were the responsibility of, of, of the campuses, and all campuses at that time were building various types of cable, Ethernet television, all sorts of mix and technology networks. But it was important to delegate the responsibility for connecting the individual researcher to the campus so that somebody was responsible for that rather than individual user connections. So the first layer were the campuses. The second layer were uh, regional networks, supercomputer networks, statewide networks, and so on. I was convinced that this was the right model in summer 85, when I went to Cornell and heard about NISERNet and their plans for a statewide network, and I realized that, that this was a way of leveraging other funding, community funding, state funding, um, investment in, in, uh, in networks as a mid-tier level. And the third tier was a new backbone network, the NSFNet backbone. 
And the original idea was to have a T1 backbone, which would have been the height of speed in 1985. And in practice, <laughs> it, it was an interim backbone uh, at 56 kV. And there's a lot of story about getting that, that ready. But in terms of standards, that created all sorts of issues that now had to be confronted. So the, the, the technical, I, I wasn't a technical guy. I mean, I wasn't technically stupid, but I wasn't a technical guy. Uh, in fact, if I had been a technical guy, I probably would have gone, oh, my God, I can't do this. It won't work. You know, it just <laughs> can't go. But the routing protocols needed to be invented to cope with this actual use of the Internet uh, at large. And so, I mean, one of, one of the grants that I got approval for was to fund a Sun workstation for John Postel to facilitate him doing his, his stuff, which now takes a whole corporation like I can to, to do in terms of tracking the uh, the, the, the the parameters that, that uh, underlie the internet, the, the, the parameters related to standards, the domain names, the IP addresses, and all that sort of stuff. All this was very new and very raw. So I would say, to answer your question directly, that this activity led to uh, an explosion of interest in and effort in to try and develop the, the standards that were necessary to make the internet really work at scale. And out of that came uh, the formalities, the IETF, and later the IAB, and so on and so on, which I wasn't, wasn't involved in back then. So I had this, I had this, this, this model of a network of networks or internet. I had this model of standards using TCP IP. Of course, given that the US government had signed up to, uh, to ISO as a, for government procurement, the, the subtext was that the uh, NSFNet would transition to uh, international standards, ISO, uh, ISO OSI, International Standards Open Systems Interconnection, in due course, when those protocols were available and provided the necessary functionality. But meanwhile, on an interim basis, we were going to use the TCP IP standards. And I mentioned that because later on, that became, after I'd gone, that became a hotly contested area. But we'll come to that in due course. So there we had the, the uh, a network of networks, internet standards, a three-level implementation model, campus networks, regional networks, and a new backbone network, which I'd yet to, to get agreement on. And my role was then to go around the United States, and I must have visited most major airports in the United States in my 15 months, and talk to people about this idea to, to energize the campuses, the community, the technical community, the networking guys, the researchers, to buy into this model of a national network for research. I wouldn't have called it a national research and education network, an NREN, which is the, the modern term, but basically that was what I was talking about. And that began to work. People got enormously enthused. Everywhere I went, people wanted to know, could they get involved? Would the NSF, uh, support, the NSF net program support them in, in, in some way? When I went to Cornell, the key end of presentation question by Cornell was, if we were to do this, would, would the NSF, would you fund it? Of course, my, my standard reply was, I cannot make any commitment about any funding by the, by the National Science Foundation. 
but I can say to you that I would welcome a proposal, not that I would be the deciding, but if you make a proposal, I will certainly support it and see that it is reviewed and see if the National Science Foundation uh, will fund it. And so we built up this idea, campus networks rapidly evolving, regional networks rapidly evolving. I think I funded, by the time I'd left, the NSFNet program had funded at least 50% of the, the major regional networks. And the NSFNet backbone, the interim backbone at 56 KB. And there's a lovely story about that. That happened on the 16th. There was a review meeting with the supercomputer centers on the 16th of September, 1985. And uh, the first items on the agenda was an update from Larry Lee, who was the program director for supercomputers, now sadly deceased, and myself as program director for networking. I gave my update. And in that update, I said, and the next step that, that uh, I want to agree here with you, uh, supercomputer center directors, is an interim backbone connecting all the supercomputer centers that you guys will take responsibility for running. And the answer was a resounding no. We're not interested in doing that. So that was a bit of a setback. So I sort of slumped in the corner and thought about it. And over dinner that night, I went from table to table. We were in a, a restaurant, and there were only restaurants, only small tables. So I was able to go to each group and sit down and talk to them and say, hey, listen, do you really understand that this backbone network will give you, the supercomputer center, the opportunity of not just serving your community that's connected to your supercomputer, but serving the whole community across the United States and the opportunity to be the nation's best supercomputer center. And a little more discussion over breakfast the following morning, and we reconvened at nine o'clock, I think it was. This was in NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. And one of the directors, and I think it was it was Ken King from Cornell, although it could have been Ken Wilson, the Nobel laureate, also from Cornell, who banged the table and said, this backbone network is overdue. It's about time we had this damn network. And everybody agreed. And we adjourned to the uh, picnic table outside the NCAR uh, restaurant. And we all sketched the network. And I took all the sketches and sketched a summary. And I still have that sketch. And that was <laughs> the decision on the NSF net backbone. So that was fun. Wow. Yeah, that is that is kind of cool that you still have the sketch and that's that it came out of I mean, you know, it's very sounds very similar to the story of BGP when Yanka Fuchter and Tom sat down at the bar in Washington, DC and just said, We're just gonna sketch this out. Yep. And go do it. And so that was that was really that's really interesting that it turned out to be the same thing. It wasn't a formal meeting. It was just like, Yeah, we're gonna go do this. Yeah. And then Bill Schrader, who at that time was at Cornell, said to me, Dennis, if Cornell made a proposal to go and lease the lines and buy the routers, would you fund it? And I said, Bill, uh, I, I, I can't possibly comment about that. But what I can say is that if Cornell were to make a proposal on these lines, I would find that very interesting. And while I cannot make any commitment that the National Science Foundation will fund it, I would certainly welcome such a proposal. 
So he jumped up and ran away, and I shouted after him. He said, "I'm going to make. I'm going to call AT and I said, "Have you got? Have you got nickels and dimes?" And he said, "Yeah." And he ran to the nearest telephone box, and he phoned, <laughs> and he phoned AT and T back in back in New York State, and said, "Hey, I want to order order six fifty six KB lines from this location to this location," and and he did. That turned out that AT and T in in, in uh, New York couldn't order transcontinental lines, but that's all all detail. But that that was the sort of spirit of the gung-ho spirit that was engendered uh, by this whole activity. Later on, we had to make some decisions about, so the, the due course, the Cornell proposal came in, I had a little solicitation by somebody to review it. They came back and said, sounds right. My network technical advisory group, our NTAG, said, yeah, this looks like a sensible way to proceed. We funded it and in due course, it had gone by the time it actually went live. But one of the things that then arose was we needed routers, or, or routers, as I would say, but routers, as you guys would say, to terminate the lines. And we needed X25 switches to run the line. So the model was X25 switches and routers connecting to the local area networks or, or whatever. And um, we had uh, I ran a little solicitation to review what was available in the router world. And we had contenders <laughs> came and make presentations from, oh, I can't remember the name of the companies now. But there well, was- It would have been like uh, Bay or- Bay, yeah. uh, No, oh goodness gracious, there were four. One of which was Cisco, this little startup in California. And it, of all the commercial ones, Cisco met the spec. The person who wrote the spec was Dave Mills, wonderful guy, who wrote the RFC specifying the first specification of routers. But he had written this uh, draft RFC, which is our document, tender document, and he was on the evaluation committee, and uh, or the the yes, the evaluation committee, and the Cisco box best may met the spec of all the commercial ones about $10,000 a router. But Cisco only served California. It had no uh, supply chain or maintenance across the United States. And so we couldn't use Cisco. I mean, just this little company just wasn't a suitable supplier. And the only potential suitable supplier that met the spec on paper was the BBN Butterfly the uh, replacement for the, the ARPANET IMPS, BBM Butterfly, multi-processor device, which hadn't yet been delivered, but of course we were reassured it would work and it would it met at least. But these, <laughs> of course. The, these devices cost, by buying them by the NSF, buying them through DARPA and leveraging the DARPA volume discount, for the uh, for the uh, ARPANET, we could buy them at one hundred eighty thousand dollars a piece. And I said, "Cool, but I don't have a million dollars for routers in my budget. This won't work." So we went round and round the houses. Well, we can't buy this, and I can, and I can't afford that. What are we going to do? And eventually, Dave Mills put up his hand and said, um, "There's this fuzzball 
experimental box that that I have, which I use to um, to develop routers and to develop code as a research tool, and, and it works. And of course, it meets the spec. I wrote the spec. I wrote the code. It meets the spec. And I said, well, how, how much would those cost? You know, about ten thousand um, dollars. And and there's no there's no license fee for the software. That's just the EDP eleven that you need to run it on. I said, that sounds good. And all the other technical people said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't, you can't run the backbone on one guy's, one man effort. And I said, look, faced with an impossible set of choices, I can't do this and I can't afford that. And here's an opportunity, but you can't do that. I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. And that's what we did. Or rather, that's what the contractor to whom I made that recommendation, did, bought the fuzzballs. In that discussion, and this is probably my only technical contribution, I looked at it and said, what about these X25 switches that have to front the, the routers? And the guy said, yeah, yeah, okay, well, manage the lines. I said, well, why? They said, what do you mean, why? I said, well, why don't you just route the packets straight onto the lines? Why do you have this routing box and then this switch doing essentially the same job. And there was a puzzled look. And Dave Mills thought about it. Scott Bradner, I think, was there. He thought about it. And they sort of mumbled into their beards and said, I don't see why not, Dennis. And that re- replaced five switches that I couldn't afford anyway. And the, the, the PDP-11 box just shipped packets onto the 56 KB lines. And that's my technical contribution. <laughs> so you talk about PDP-11 and Fuzzball. We actually had Bill Yeager on, and he claimed that the Cisco iOS code originated with the PDP-11 and the Fuzzball. And hence, that's why it met your specs. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly why. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, 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 it's a small world. <laughs> and then my final act as, as program director for networking, I was asked by science to write a review paper on networking, which I did. And it was published in February 1986 in their annual review uh, edition. Uh, it was featured on the front page. It was the first general article at that sort of you know, major uh, journal level. And I understand from people who, who around the world who, who have told me so, it was enormously influential. It was basically a rather boring survey article. It couldn't say anything about many of the regionals because those grants had not been approved and therefore I couldn't, I couldn't preempt that process. But it did have, and it was written by myself, Larry Landweber, Dave Farber, Ira Fuchs, and Rick Adrian from the National Science Foundation, previously the National Science Foundation. It was essentially written by me and by Larry, as is usual. But Larry and I spent quite a bit of time towards the end, particularly driven by Larry. Dennis, there needs to be something more than a survey. There needs to be a vision statement. And so we constructed, what was at the beginning and the summary and at the end, a vision statement. And the vision statement 
went something along the lines that our vision is that the researcher at their desktop workstation through that window can access all the communications, computing information, and data resources that they need across the United States in order to conduct their research. And that vision resonates today, that the researcher would have all the resources that they need through the window of their workstation. You know, back then we were talking about Sun workstations, and even then, the, the 3M workstation was, was a future. That is the one MIP, one megapixel, and one megabyte. And just think about it. One MIP, one megapixel, and one megabyte was the definition of the workstation in 1985. In fact, after 1985. And then I went home to Ireland. <laughs> and hung out and did nothing, right? <laughs> no, picked up my job. Got involved in European networking, uh, uh, suffered the ignominy of being a, a decadent TCP/IP person rather than ISO OSI person. <laughs> Wrote some papers, including a, a short article in Nature in '91, uh, I think, about how Europe was going the wrong way because the European model driven by the funding from national governments and by the European Commission was heavily on open, open networking, but using ISO OSI standards, but more particularly by using the connection-oriented networking standards and public switched, packet-switched networks and all the associated costs and lousy speeds and completely missing the point about research networking, which was that it must be free at the point of consumption. It was in, in power, higher speeds. And yes, it must be open, but it must be open to connect to workstations, not telephone networks. Completely missing that. And not whatever I said, basically, I got ostracized and booed for a number of years for being uh, such a decadent and and and, and appalling fellow as to want to use TCP IP and by capacity. And remember, by the way, remember back in 84, 85, it was still illegal in the, for, the, for a, an end user to switch third party traffic across public data communications because it was all a public monopoly. But that is another sad story and that consumed my life. But anyway, I had a wonderful time in my 15 months at the National Science Foundation, I met some fantastic people. And every five years since 2005, I have a reunion in Washington. Last year's was, uh, was, was virtual, of course. But the idea is that those of us who still survive and those of I remember get together in Washington for a dinner and a drink or two and to chat about the old, good old days when networking was networking and men were men. <laughs> and, we, and women too. There were a lot of women involved in the networking back then, just, yeah. just not to be sexist. And that's the story. <laughs> that's the story. That's really cool. Well, thanks. So what are you working on now of interest that, that people might want to follow? Or is there anything? I left the university at the end of 1999. I had made an investment in 1990 in a startup company started by a friend of mine I'd known for many years, 
1999, that was bought out by, uh, by four systems. It was a networking company that built uh, network management tools, started off building, make, making software for drivers and systems. It built a set of networking tools and then integrate that into a networking management framework, which was bought for an extraordinary amount of money by four systems uh, because they needed a, a network management system for their ATM boxes. And 10 weeks later, four systems was bought by General Electric Company, trebling the amount of money that we uh, received. The original buyout was in shares of four systems. The second buyout was cash. So I suddenly had a little more cash than I ever anticipated I would. And I retired from the university and became an angel investor and have potted around doing interesting things ever since. That's cool. I, uh, yeah. I, I chaired Center. The, it was the, the um, domain name registries for, for Europe. I chaired that for a couple of years. I chaired the Irish National Supercomputer Center called iCheck for six years. I was on the board of ICANN for three years. And generally, I'm sort of approaching retirement and still making the occasional investment. And for fun, I chair the Board of Governors of the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Because I'm a music <laughs> fan. Music fan as well. I you know, do interesting stuff. Cool. Yeah. Great fun. Well, thanks for coming on and joining us on the History of Networking. Donald, you're still me, not you sharp, right? On Twitter? On Twitter, yes. And you can find me at rule11.tech. And we hope you'll join us next time for the next History of Networking, where we have all these fascinating conversations about where the internet came from. Subscribe to the History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.